produced by Ranting Rhino Productions. Praxis Pedagogy exists to position our teaching and learning practice within different methodologies. We want to construct a guild of educators dedicated to designing a difference in our own teaching and learning and in our students' experience. Three, two, one. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. This is session two with the Tracy Roberts. Now, Tracy Roberts is the Director of Learning and Teaching at BC Campus. What a great organization that is. Now, it's an organization that exists to make teaching and learning in BC higher education more inclusive and accessible. This is done through organizing events, doing projects and research, and providing professional development opportunities for educators. Now, this is the awesome part. Tracy is also a facilitator and a doodler. With nearly 20 years experience in BC post-secondary education, Tracy is a liberating structures enthusiast who prefers having serious fun at work and tries to bring humor and energy to her leadership and all her collaborations. And this podcast does not disappoint. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you on the other side. My name is Tracy Roberts. I am the Director of Learning and Teaching at BC Campus. And physically, I work on the territory of the Songhees and Esquimalt nations of the Lekwungen ancestors and families. Uh, in terms of higher ed, I'm closest to the campus at Royal Roads University. Cool. So have you, have you worked with BC Campus for a while? Um, I, well, a very, very long while I was, a, I was, I would call it, you know, a customer and a partner and a friend in various ways. Oh, I want to say probably late, early 2000s when I was working at Simon Fraser University in the teaching and learning center there. And then I was at Royal Roads for 10 years in the learning and teaching center there. And so through those affiliations, I participated in lots of BC campus groups and events and things. And then um, about eight years ago, I was lucky enough to join the learning and teaching team at BC campus. And yes, I've been there since then. Wow, that's that's amazing. Um, mm -hmm. So before we get into the open pedagogy definition and what it means to you, could you tell me a little bit about exposure, um, culture? emotion towards open pedagogy like was it a thing way back in the sfu RRU days certainly not when i was at sfu um just even open wasn't yet a thing although i do recall sort of first encountering early open thinkers at that time lots of folks were very occupied with the idea of learning objects and learning object repositories. And um, so that was in the air for sure at that time. Um, I think for a lot of us though, our first real experience with open in our work in education probably came through the textbooks, through the work um, that BC Campus did on open textbooks. And you know, then it sort of stretched from there, you know, then it was like, oh, maybe open data sets for people who work with data or yeah. Um, and then eventually feel like open pedagogy, we started real, I feel like I was really in that conversation with colleagues 
2015-ish, 2014, okay. 2015, it seems. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So what does open pedagogy mean to you? Um, now, you know, and we can talk sort of about process to get to now, I think I, or maybe it's fair to say if I zoom zooming out for me, open pedagogy, I think of it as one of those things that I call a crowbar in learning design. And I'm making the gesture of cranking something open. Um, crowbars are usually a technology. Sometimes they're an idea or a framework um, that just invites people to think differently and get excited about their learning design and, and crank their course open and relook at it. That's why I think of it like a crowbar. Um, so it's a catalyst for kind of reflecting on your practice and stuff. Um, and so, you know, some other examples uh, that of that is like online learning. Just it's hard to think about now, but at one point that was a, a profound <laughs> revelation <laughs> that we could have discussion boards to accompany um, a face-to-face -face or a distance education course, right? Um, social media was massive. Like, you know, with the onset of wikis and blogs, which, you know, an important precursor to uh, open pedagogy, uh, important tools to help that all happen. I mean, that was massive and it made people really rethink a lot about what they were doing. I mean, it might be other things too, like UDL, I think is something that invites people to really look at their courses again. So anyways, I think of OER, open pedagogy, sort of like, like those things, they're innovations or something, right? right it's right. a new idea. Mm -hmm. Right. So let's talk about the process a little bit. So have you always been an in, in open pedagogy advocate or was there a time where you weren't? Um, I would never say there's a time that I wasn't because I think it ultimately comes down to good teaching and learning practice. So, you know, uh, when I was probably still in my undergrad, I had a professor that of education who warned us not to jump or not to break our legs, jumping on and off the bandwagons in education. Um, and so I don't, I don't think of this like that as a bandwagon, but it people get very excited and go running off in directions on things. And I just I think at its core, something like open pedagogy or UDL or, you know, it is just about good practice and that evolves a bit. But fundamentally, we're talking about supporting learning um, and humans that are engaging in learning. So what are that what is what is required for that is always going to be the key question. Right. So what, what are some core principles about open pedagogy that you find yourself using or advocating for communicating the most about? When I think of open pedagogy and sort of like what might distinguish it from other kind of quote unquote good practice, I think about non-disposable assignments. I think of, you know, working in the open when it makes sense. I think of, you know, students publishing their work online. Uh, taking advantage of open resources and data sets. Um, like those are the, those are kind of like the features I think of if, you know, it, it needs to have that. Um, but like I was saying to you, I chatted with Mary Burgess about this too. And her, her take on it is it's really about centering students and democratizing knowledge um, as sort of fundamental principles, which I agree. Uh, I agree with them, but also I think that's again, good practice. So is that open? It can be for sure. Right. right. Done well. It is. Yeah. 
So do you see open pedagogy as like a, a, a philosophy and a practice put together rather than like some of the other learning um, frameworks that I see is like, here's the framework and you decide how it's going to work. Do you, do you yeah, feel that makes Yeah, that makes sense because, well, it's definitely a practice mm-hmm. and I guess it is, I mean, you have to believe in it to do it or invite people to do it. So yeah, sure. Okay. Okay. So why would someone want to invest in this kind of work? Well, I think everyone should invest in developing good learning centered practice. Um, Like I think educators have a moral obligation as well as a professional one um, to learn and uh, update their learning about how learning works so that they can do their jobs to the best of their ability. And that means reconciliation, trauma-informed practice, anti-racism, accessibility, et cetera. Um, Institutions have a role. Um, I think why someone would want to invest in this work is it's because it's going to make the learning more successful. And in the biggest of pictures, we need that uh, for a good society uh, to live in together. So I think that's ultimately why I think you know, on some level, institutions are businesses and they need to attract uh, students. Students have a choice about where they attend more and more as online um, becomes uh, and delivery models become more flexible. And so, yeah, I think we really want to be the best for that reason too, for the sustainability of your institution and, and yeah, and our society. Mm. So, how has this kind of work changed over the years? I mean, you may have touched on it a tiny bit where it, it started off with, you know, some data sets and, and people dipping their toes into it, but has there been a significant change for you in the work over the last number of years? You know, I am not entirely sure about that in this. Uh, I feel like it's, there's more of it. And so there's more examples or more instances of it. But I was thinking back um, when you invited me to have this conversation, I I went back and started looking sort of through other notes and things I've done in the past presentations. So around um, like 2015, uh, David Wiley wrote that blog post about driving the airplane on the road. Right. And his point was, you know, if you fail to take advantage of the affordances offered by technology, um, you know, you're choosing to ignore the potential, you know, you, you drive your plane down the road. Um, and I, I mean, he was talking about copyrighted materials, I think too, but also it seemed to me he was making a point about technology. And so, you know, at that time we were quite excited about that, uh, thinking. And we really wanted to come up with a whole bunch of examples of like, what would it look like? And so we sort of developed this like quadrant and on, on one side of it, it was like um, open and not open. And on another side of it, it was learning centered and teaching centered. And we sort of tried to map out like what would be an example of an open learning centered practice? What would be an example of an open teaching centered practice? And we just, you know, and what we wanted to do was generate as many exact, like 15 or 20 examples in the 
open learning centered quadrant because we thought that was going to be like the best that there is. And at that time, you know, there was lots of examples. There was um, like that great one about the wiki where the students would edit the thing and try to get it, you know, elevated. There was lots of uh, blogging work, students publishing their work. There was DS106 radio, which is still happening. Um, so I think, I don't know if there's been a whole bunch new total concepts since then, but hopefully more instances of them in the world. And I really hope I'm wrong about that. Um, that there are new, uh, brand new ideas. I'm sure there are. Um, but yeah, it's, it seems to me, I'm not aware of something that was fundamentally different from that time, but I sometimes wonder if that is a bit of a failure of technology too. Like I'm a little surprised that after the last couple of years, we don't have real different tools at our disposal yet. Maybe they're coming, but I don't know. Yeah, it's it. I, I've I've thought about that too, in the sense that there's been in, incremental changes as we go, and here we are with some pretty neat technology. And I know a couple of years ago that um, Harvard Business was, had really taken their hybrid uh, learning experience to another level, where they had they would have 50, 75 people in a room, where they they would literally have that number of screens in a room, like taking up a whole wall and the professor would stand in front of these screens and she would see the, or he and she would see these giant heads (laughs) on the wall and talking to them. Like the professor would normally talk to a class. And I, and when I saw that, I went, okay, that's, that's significant. Right. Mm. But I also find, and and maybe you want to comment on this. I also find that technology isn't the silver bullet. No, no, I mean, it never is right. It's, I mean, it helps and it can hurt. Certainly it can harm. We've seen that, but no, it it comes, it comes from good learning design. And I think about even this is a small thing, but it's a huge thing um, in approaching the course design process. If you start with learning or you start with content, that's a very different starting place. And I think a lot of people, faculty, academics with deep expertise in content of different types, naturally start with content because that's what they love. It's what they have done. It's how they learned, I'm sure. And so, I don't know, I just think that shift would be quite big. <laughs> it is. I think you're right because from a trace perspective in an apprenticeship background and a, a competency based learning system, it's all about what can you do? Can you replicate this action mm. uh, all the way from, you know, when, when you start out all the way to graduation and when you move into being a journey person, moving into education, I've always called it a, co- a complete career change mm. because I'm no longer working with two or three apprentices out on a job site, showing them how to solder or cut pipe or, carry pipe for that instead. Like not, I'm not physically doing anything in front of them. Yeah. Now I have 16 apprentices in front of me and I'm trying to convey some kind of theoretical content that Mm -hmm. they may not have any kind of pigeonhole or flag to put it on because they've never seen it. Yeah. And, and it didn't take me long to figure out that, yeah, I'm a subject matter expert, but I'm not an educator. 
(laughs) And it, and it took, it took, you know, a year or two of, of grappling with that and going, okay, if this is what it's meant to be, then you need to become an educator. And, and so there, there's, there's the launch, but, um, yeah, I that's think that's a huge act of humility though. Like that's a huge, and that's something that I think it's not, people don't think about that because there's this assumption that if you know, you can somehow get the information out of your brain into someone else's. And that in itself is not a specialty. Well, it is, of course, like we know that, but no, it, it's, we've, we've just assumed that, you know, smart people can open their mouths and the knowledge comes shooting out of it and lands into somebody's head and it not necessarily right. Like, and not to say there aren't charismatic speakers and lecturers that are fun. Absolutely. There are, we've all had three in our very long lifetimes that we remember and the rest we don't. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and I've worked with some colleagues who were not charismatic by the standard definition and yet deeply deeply concerned about success, success of their apprentices in the classroom. Yeah. And, and we're on the same path as me. And yet we're not, we were not the same personality. Like we were almost polar opposites. Um, yeah. Good. Ugh. Well, it's, I mean, it's systemic, right. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to um, dunk on educators in that way because it's the system that we're in values research and, you know, other administrative duties. And I think there isn't a system built around uh, supporting educators. You know, there's always a group who actually do have expertise in teaching and love it and have done a lot of PD and seek it out and, you know, like realize that it's super important and, you know, whatever are able to find ways and, and all of that And some places value it more than others. But I think that's, um, like it always blows my mind that my chiropractor has to do a certain number of continuing education hours a year in order to keep snapping my neck, but higher education and they're supported and they go and, you know, like there's funding and all that kind of stuff. But, but, you know, like a professor doesn't have a system around them that makes that happen for them. So, yeah. Yeah. That, that part needs to change, I think. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And if I was allowed to get on a soapbox a little bit, it would be, it would be two things. One, it would be a two-step soapbox. <laughs> well, it's your one- show. I mean, why not? <laughs> well, the, fir- the first one would be stop looking at, at, at higher education TVET as a, as a, as a destination zone, right? Where it's like, when I'm done out in the field and I'm done making my money or my name and reputation, I'll go teach because it's an easy job and I don't have to do anything. I'll just show up. And like you said, just spew forth all this stuff that I know. And every apprentice will just be writing crazily because I'm so great. And it's like, yeah, yeah. you're, you're not God's gift to the vocational education world. Like, so there's that piece. And then there's the other one of, you know, there are institutions who will not either pay the top drawer to get top drawer people from industry to come into education and, or not asking for their hirees to go and complete the provincial instructor's diploma. Right. right. And that boggles my mind. That boggles my mind. And, Me too. And, yeah. I, and I've said for a long time that, you know, 
education is about a launching pad. It's not a destination resort. Like I don't come to work. Think, well, I do, I do come to work, not now because I work at BC campus, but I worked for the institution I was at before. It was, I was, I was st- every year I was like, I can't believe I'm here. Like, I can't believe I'm here. Like, this is such a great opportunity. I can't believe that they let me do this. <laughs> um, yeah, cool. Um, so maybe this answers our, our next question, but in your experience, um, what is being done to educate faculty about open pedagogy? If it's, if it's about a philosophy and a practice, um, what's, what's being done? My sense is it varies by institution, you know, and what is the culture and who are the people there. And there are so many champions of open around our province for sure. Um, And so I think and believe that those folks working locally have an impact locally because a lot of um, faculty development and other activities go on locally. And so hopefully that's the case. Um, I mean, I, of course, BC campus does stuff, uh, lots of stuff, uh, to support learning and access to learning in that area. Um, but I think again, it's, it's, there's a system that is a lot of pressure on faculty. So I, we always, all of us have to prioritize, right. And sometimes they need to do something else, you know, that's more urgent. Like how do I get my grades in the system and then I'll figure out how to do open pedagogy later. Right. Like there's, there are a lot of pressures. So I'm, yeah, I think I have been uh, lucky to have uh, spent time in lots of different um, teaching and learning centers in our province at different colleges and universities. And I know there's a lot of good people doing a lot of great work, both in like workshoppy mode and one-on-one supporting instructional design. And I mean, that's, that's where to do it, right? It's like, let's just do it in context of developing your course. Let's do it with one assignment or something and just kind of try it. But I think if you aren't, you know, if you are an educator and you aren't already in this space, having a a helpful instructional designer, learning technologist, someone who can just kind of chat through it with you and um, yeah, is sort of everything. So uh, that would precipitate people leaning into their LTC, uh, whether it's uh, a group of 10 or a group of one, right. Lean, lean into that that LTC person or group, right? Yeah. Yeah. So if you were given the opportunity to speak to a room of administrators, associate deans, deans, maybe even program heads, Mm -hmm. uh, and you were given an opportunity to, to convince them about what we're talking about, what might you want to say? Well, let's see. I think actually what I would encourage them to do is talk to their faculty and ask them what they need, because it might be different in different places. I think people often will say, I I don't have any funding for this, but it's almost, it's, it's not often money as often as it's time. And so I think it's about figuring out in the local culture, what can you stop doing? to make space for elevating the importance of teaching. Um, 
Yeah. And, and that is going to be different in different places. Different places have different everything. So, so I think that's not very, um, I wish it was more of a call to action. Like we're going to the moon, but, but I think it's more like talk to your actual faculty and see what they say would make a difference. And I bet it's about shifting time around and it's, it's amazing. I think there's always going to be something you can stop doing. I really think that, you know, um, we do, we continue to do a lot of things out of habit or routine or whatever. And so I don't know, I've done a lot of, uh, facilitation with groups where we work through a process and consider some of the things that we can let go of. And often people have a lot of good ideas for that to make space. So that would be something. That would be something. Yeah. Sounds like a workshop. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, so as we, as we wrap up, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been amazing. And I promise not too many rabbit trails, but, um, <laughs> as we're talking, I'm thinking, Oh, <laughs> that, that would be good. That would be good. That would be great. Uh, but let, let's, let's look at this last question. Um, are there any resources you would recommend to those who are looking for a deeper dive into open pedagogy? Yes, I okay. have an excellent one. And, um, this one I'm very proud of. It was. Um, some amazing work done by our own Leva Lee with Tannis Morgan. It is an open uh, education challenge series. And so it's a deep dive, but it's also a very light and accessible dive. You're nodding. You know, the one I'm talking about. Yeah. The bite-sized learning. OEChallenge.OpenEd.ca. So it is just 10 challenges, 10 minutes, bite-sized learning. I think they ran it for five days. People did two challenges a day. So the thing I love about this is it's micro learning, it's progressive, and it itself is uh, an OER. So anyone listening uh, who may want to support a group of educators could grab that and facilitate it for them, or it can just run as an independent thing. So that's one of my very, it's very, very practical too, right? It's like for people who are starting fresh. Um I'm also, we've had some really, um, our friends at Lumen uh, Learning have um, a program called Lumen Circles, and we have supported some educators to go through that. I would say that's going to be a deeper dive into um, sort of learning design and learning centered design. And obviously they're very much in the open space. So those are two that I can think of off the top of my head. Uh, that's perfect. Thank you so much for that. Any final words for people that uh, may be teetering on the edge of the open pedagogy pool? Mm. Oh, so do you think there's a group of people there who are like hesitant, but curious? Yeah. And and you, you've touched on a few of the barriers, like I don't have time and there's no yeah. money, right? Um, yeah. What, what, what might you say to those who are still teetering on the edge? Mm. I think, I, well, I would say try the challenge series because it's little, little tiny things you can try in 10 minutes and see if it sort of sparks any creativity. But I really do think that, um, educators are creative, caring, very smart people who love to tinker with their courses. So I'm going to assume that everybody's going to tinker anyway. A little bit here, a little bit there. You don't have to do the big crowbar, rip it all open and look at it. You can just like 
noodle around the edges of your course. And so I would say pick one assignment that you know you have to do something about, but you just haven't and see what it would look like if it became an open one. Uh, Excellent. I love it. Well, thanks again so much, Tracy, for being a part of this and uh, for all the insight that you brought. And um, thank you for all the work that you do. It's important work. And uh, we love that you're doing it. Thank you. Thanks for asking me. It was really fun.